Welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Dr. Cyril Pettit is the Executive Director of the Health and Environmental Sciences Institute, or HESI, an international nonprofit organization that builds public-private partnerships in application-driven science for improving human and environmental health. As HESI's senior leader, she has guided the scientific and strategic direction for the organization's more than 600 members and its programs for the last 20 plus years. Dr. Pettit holds a doctorate in public health from University of North Carolina's Gillings School of Global Public Health and a master's in environmental management from Duke University. In this episode, Dr. Pettit and I talk about how advances in cancer treatment have increased survivorship, but have also resulted in patients living long enough to experience the long-term side effects of both primary and adjuvant therapies. Often, these impact survivors' physical, emotional, and even financial and social well-being. Dr. Pettit and her team conduct and support research and innovation that bridge the interests and inputs of patients, life sciences firms, academic medicine, clinicians, and public health toward a future of survivorship that supports all aspects of patients' health and well-being, and their thriving. Dr. Pettit is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Pettit. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. So we're going to dig into uh, cancer and cancer survivorship, and we've seen great progress in cancer treatment over the last decade, which has meant a pretty significant rise in survivorship. But as patients who survive cancer live years and then potentially decades past their treatment, the long-term impacts of what are often highly toxic treatments can start to manifest. Uh, what kinds of issues are you seeing for cancer survivors? So when we look at the survivorship population in cancer, it is really, um, it's kind of a, a mixed scenario. So of course, we're incredibly excited as a biomedical research community and in the provider community about the progress made to advance the lifespan for cancer patients and make diseases that were um, lethal now survivable. Um, but what that does mean is that patients sometimes are taking some of these um, chemotherapeutic drugs or treatments, perhaps sometimes early on in their life, and then seeing late stage effects from um, those drugs manifesting many years later. For example, there are some drugs being used uh, to treat pediatric leukemias that can have cardiac effects, um, sometimes mm -hmm. even leading, leading to the need for a cardiac transplant in young adults, um, patients in their, or survivors who are now in their late 20s, for example. Um, we also see examples of things that are maybe somewhat less life-threatening, but still can greatly impact um, a survivor's quality of life. So for patients that perhaps have survived their primary cancer, uh, but then are taking um, many months to uh, sometimes many, many years of adjuvant therapy, so therapies to help um, keep the cancer essentially at bay once they are largely cured or, or primarily in remission, um, some of these drugs uh, can impact a patient's quality of life by causing um, nerve damage, pain, fatigue, um, things that impact the ability to get through daily living tasks, um, to engage with family, to engage in work successfully. Um, and there are also some examples um, of either adjuvant drugs or post chemo, you know, primary therapy drugs that can impact fertility. So we mm -hmm. look at lots of different examples as this patient um, survivorship population grows, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to see this kind of progress um, from therapy 
compared to 30 years ago. That does mean, though, that there are new kinds of um, considerations that we need to be looking at to make sure that those, those patients are not only surviving, but they're thriving um, in their post-cancer lives. I like that that shift of not just looking at, you know, often when we look at cancer, we look at length of time survived and survivorship at, at five years or 10 years. But I, I like this kind of digging into what is the quality of that life and how what can we do as early as possible to ensure that financially, socially, physically, that is as, as vibrant as possible. So what are some of the approaches needed to mitigate the long-term negative impact of, of cancer treatments? It's, it's a complicated answer. And I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons this has remained such a challenging problem um, are because there's so many factors that come into play to trying to do better for survivors. Um, so on the, you know, the maybe the most obvious one, the one we might think of first is, can we do things differently in terms of the drugs that they are taking either for the primary cancer or in the adjuvant space? And a lot of work um, is ongoing, has been ongoing to better understand the mechanism of action of these drugs so that if, um, for example, the drug does have a delayed cardiotoxic effect, that we better understand how is that effect um, mediated in the body? How can we um, bring the right care to those patients throughout their um, young adulthood so that they are being monitored appropriately so that if we can detect if there is some signs of potential um, damage that they are not only consulting with their oncologist, but for example, they're being um, uh, tracked and engaging with a cardiologist um, mm -hmm. so that they're able to better track those symptoms. So really broadening out that um, circle of, of clinical support that survivors are receiving. So perhaps they're seeing a, a neurologist um, in addition to um, the oncologist, or even just that basic um, goal of making sure those patients are receiving routine annual care or more than annual care as they move into that survivorship phase. And sometimes um, we heard from patients that as they move out of that primary treatment phase into the adjuvant phase or their survivorship phase, they're not receiving the same level of, of uh, clinical support and attention. So the ability to kind of monitor those potential impacts on their health and receive care for them is less. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, though, I think there's lots of other ways that we can you know, help to support patients in that survivorship um, phase. Um, one of them is you know, really kind of recognizing that quality of life aspect and what that means. And it's much more than just um, something you can treat with a pill. And there are opportunities to support patients uh, by being more understanding of how um, their symptoms may be impacting their ability to, to succeed with things in, in daily life. Um, so are there ways that we can provide psychosocial services to these patients to help them um, either um, better um, deal, deal with those symptoms on their own? Are there ways we can help with them to achieve their um, daily goals through providing access to transportation, access to um, you know, supportive services in their employment environment? Are there other ways that we can help make sure that these patients are adequately supported um, so that they are best able to um, live fully and richly um, in addition to, to living additional years following their primary cancer. Um, and I guess the other piece I would emphasize there is really also opening up the 
the clinical community and the regulatory community to understanding kind of how quality of life plays into mm -hmm. um, these questions around toxicity or drug effects. Um, it's a relatively new um, space for the, certainly for the, the drug regulatory environment and for the pharmaceutical companies and for clinicians for that matter. Mm -hmm. So the number of studies are, are growing that are trying to bring in whether they call it real world evidence or patient reported outcomes, including these in electronic medical records, trying to include these in clinical trials. I mean, it's, there's no doubt it's inherently challenging because these are very variable, it's less controlled situations. At the same time, this is emblematic of what patients are experiencing and being able to um, have providers better aware of the variable, variable kind of situations and how they can help support their patients and also creating an environment where patients feel empowered and, and encouraged to share more yeah. than just you know, the information on their, their blood chemistry with their providers, um, that they provide a more holistic sense of what's going on in their life and their ability to um, succeed in, in kind of the tasks they want to succeed in um, on a day-to-day -day basis is really important part of kind of opening up that conversation so that those patients have that opportunity. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I can imagine there's a, there's a bunch of different challenges here. One is, you know, the things we've tracked and the things we like to track, particularly in trials, are very objective and measurable. And these, these, these um, lifestyle elements or impact on activities of daily living and things are often viewed as more subjective, right? And the and what the patient's goals are, which which might be variable and not not in a, in total alignment with the provider um, and what their priorities are. I think that can that gets into a messier territory that we often don't train providers at least to go into. We certainly don't know how to capture it systematically or, or analyze it in the clinical trial or, or assessment arena. So I can see where that that gets complicated and, and needs um, needs some pioneers who are willing to push forward and and track in that maybe uncomfortable space. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think good progress has been made in the last few years. Um, a number of providers um, who are helping to be real leaders in that arena and showing that it, yeah, it can be complicated, but it also can be incredibly insightful and really can lead you to understand, come to a different conclusion about the efficacy of a trial, about mm. the impact of changing a drug, or even, you know, the impact of changing the number of times you meet with a patient. So maybe the drug dosing regimen is exactly the same, but you provide the patient with an iPad that allows them to report in their symptoms to the provider on a weekly basis. So you've done nothing in terms of your pharmaceutic treatment of the drug of the patient, but you give them some opportunity to share some of those perspectives and that can have a real impact on how the patient feels at the end of um, right. at the end of the experience. And those kind of things rolling in together are part of kind of whether it's in survivorship or frankly any kind of patient care setting provide that opportunity to, to you know bring more of the patient's experience um, into that into that conversation and making sure we're we're valuing it and really looking at it as part of a response to therapy um, in a, in a broader sense because it's you know if you start to exclude that it really it, it frankly doesn't make sense you're not really reflecting right. what the patient is going through and therefore it's going to impact your patient outcome absolutely right because you're going to start to hit on com compliance with the regimen and and those sorts of things that um, that then can either confound the data if you're in a trial setting or impact the the survivorship, um, if somebody is is 
not following the, the treatment guidelines because of the impact, which is a completely rational decision for them to make, but seems irrational sometimes from the provider side. So if we if we pull back up, you've just described things that are about the, the creation and evaluation of the drugs, about social and health support. So you've it, it really spans the realm of pharmaceutical companies, academic medical systems, um, health systems, payers, public health, and none of them fully owns the challenge, either by the scope of their their business or practice or financially. So your work is to build coalitions and, and kind of connect the dots between these. What does it take to build that uh, coalition and collaboration among these disparate players that have completely um, disconnected business models and, and often um, ways of acting in the, in the medical sphere? It's hard, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, um, it really takes, I would say, a commitment to recognizing that that is in both underfunded and undervalued space, that there is some assumption that everybody's um, statements that we should all collaborate, we should all work together, we should be interdisciplinary, this is going to take a team approach, doesn't just happen. That there right. need to be individuals, organizations who are tasked and accountable for trying to ensure that those interactions happen not just once, but happen repeatedly. And so part of what um, my organization has been trying to do and a number of others are really to create those nexus points and try to, particularly to raise the visibility of the issue. I think the more that we can um, make the different communities aware of, of these challenges in the survivorship space and aware of the way that challenge is viewed by their different stakeholders. So the challenge as voiced by the patient community doesn't look exactly the same as the challenge voiced by the regulatory community or the challenge voiced by the clinical community or the payer community. They're all valid. They're all different. They all have intersections, but they all have differences. And so trying to create those opportunities where they can hear how those things come together and where they differ, and then try to identify where there may be some synergy points that we can um, allow them to work effectively and collaboratively, really ideally in an ongoing way so that this doesn't become a, a, a flashpoint of this is a big problem, this is a challenge, and then everybody goes off and works in their separate quarters um, until um, such point that it kind of comes back together again. So that really has been one of our goals through trying to create innovative um, um, funding programs through innovative grant programs that help to kind of bring together different kinds of researchers to elevate um, the work in this space and really seed proof of concept studies that might not be deemed as, um, it's not gonna be eligible for some huge grant from the National Institute of Health, but it's the kind of science that helps to move things forward because it has people who are willing to kind of take that step outside the box and say, mm -hmm. we think this is an important issue. There's a real opportunity to impact patients here, um, but we need the chance to do these initial studies to get things moving forward. And one of the challenges in these spaces that are, um, uh, under-recognized in terms of the value of this, these intersections across the clinic and the basic research or the clinic and the patients is that people don't necessarily provide funds there or don't necessarily right. provide attention. So we've been trying to elevate the attention in this space 
um, through a variety of different um, forums and also to try and bring, frankly, some, some funding and some resources in a pretty nominal way, to be honest, but just enough to help kind of move the science forward and start to give it that kind of foot up on the ladder so that they can kind of go off and, and take advantage of some of those broader resources in the cancer space that, that don't always recognize the, um, or have resources dedicated to the, the issues of, of survivorship. And as you're moving forward in that, how do you how do you gauge progress? How do you gauge success? Is it is it, is it in grants? Is it in studies completed? Is it in um, practices adopted or changed? All of the above, something totally different. Yeah, I think I think it is certainly in those things that you just mentioned. Um, I think it's also for me, and it's it's more difficult to track, but it's how pervasive are these ideas in that kind of broader conversation mm. in the cancer research community and the cancer care community. And I can't give you the hard data, but my qualitative <laughs> sense is that these have, and I'm not certainly suggesting this is my work or my organization's work alone, but we have seen, I would say over the last five or six years, an increase in the frequency of conversations around survivorship, around the mm. importance of thinking about quality of life in addition to quantity of life, about engaging patient reported outcomes into studies. It's definitely been elevated um, here in the US through the Food and Drug Administration, through a number of evolving guidances around um, real world evidence and trying mm. to bring those into play. It's integrated in evolving electronic medical record tools like EPIC. Um, they all have room for improvement, but the fact is they are spaces where those conversations weren't happening in a routine way, even in a even at a pretty nascent level six or seven years ago, and now they're happening more frequently. So they will continue, I hope, to mature and to broaden. But for me, kind of being part of that conversation as opposed to being a you know, the, the last session at, at the, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of a, a real cancer research conference, right. and instead becoming kind of an issue and an approach and, um, you know, an objective in and of itself, I think is a really important transition that I don't think has been fully realized, but is something that we've seen important progress. I think that's a, a really important uh, idea. When you change the conversation, you change all of the fundamental assumptions, the ways that people approach the research and treatment and all of that. So I think that's powerful. I also want to look because, you know, we're talking about cancer survivorship, and that's certainly the area that your organization has focused on. But I imagine and I'm interested in your thoughts on um, the applicability of this concept of collaboration and of survivorship on on other areas. I, I can think of, you know, the transplant community. I can think of long COVID, right, where areas where we are still discovering or know that there are challenges in, in survivorship. Um, what are some of the lessons from this work that apply elsewhere? I think as I watch the conversations around long COVID in particular, and it's certainly not an area of specific expertise for me, but I can see the resonance. I see the language is very similar when I read these reports uh, from patients or these testimonials from patients about their experiences um, around these issues of not being set aside after you pass that. I've survived the critical mm -hmm. life-threatening phase of this. Therefore, you get a check mark, check mark, and you've now been moved on to now it's your your turn as the patient to take care of yourself for the rest of your life. Um, I think that those kinds of conversations certainly resonate with the conversations that I've had with survivors and those who work mm -hmm. in that space around 
challenges with bringing visibility to their experience, bringing, again, these non, maybe non-life-threatening indicate, non-life-threatening um, symptoms and experiences, but ones that do impact the ability to uh, live fully and happily and financially, economically, uh, viably uh, yeah. in, in a patient's life. So these kinds of conversations that are so common in the cancer survivorship space uh, for some patients, not all, um, certainly resonate with what I've been reading and seeing um, in the, the long COVID space as well. And it will be interesting to see you know, whether there are there is any kind of crosstalk between those communities. Um, you know, I think one of perhaps the key differences is at least in the cancer survivorship space where I've been engaged, it's looking at potential long-term effects of either primary treatment that have impact a patient late in their life or an mm. adjuvant treatment that's given throughout life um, to help maintain, um, uh, keep the cancer in remission a little bit different than the COVID situation where these right. impacts seem to be following the initial viral infection and then right. some kind of a subsequent um, result of that. So it's not pharmaceutically linked right. uh, potentially as compared to the other. So there is that kind of key difference there in terms of what would a regulatory agency do um, sure. to kind of track this and understand potential outcomes. However, the whole issue around patient experience, real world outcomes, um, tracking these things in a, in a medical record and making sure that they become not just anecdotal, but they actually become part of a scientific discussion around patient outcomes. Those are absolutely um, have strong parallels and, and could be an interesting space to, to watch going forward. That makes a lot of sense. So as you look ahead two to three or even five to 10 years down the road, what's your vision for what cancer care and cancer survivorship could look like and and what kind of leadership will it make to take that happen or will it take to make that happen? I think as we particularly as it's hard to have a conversation today without thinking about how COVID is um, impacting um, everything in our lives and um, certainly the impact of COVID in terms of follow on patient care, survivorship care for all patients, but certainly for those who are cancer survivors. People have been into the office less. People are not receiving as routine mm. a follow-up necessarily. Um, that, that may have an impact. And I think the opportunity to really um, try to re-engage that conversation on survivorship across a broad range of different um, you know, disease states, particularly for the, again, here for the cancer survivorship community to make sure that um, we are continuing to bring that focus on, on the evidence from patient reported outcomes and patient quality of life into the conversation around um, both drug approvals, but also in terms of how we um, make clinical treatment decisions for patients and support them in non-clinical ways and other types of psychosocial services. I think it's going to be really important that we continue that conversation, as we talked about earlier, that we make sure that it it doesn't kind of fall behind and, and suddenly right. the focus is only on, on COVID. I think that this opportunity to make sure that COVID instead helps elevate all of our um, awareness around these issues of the impact on patients of the social environment. I think it's been incredibly sadly um, evident in terms of the disparities in outcome given different um social and economic settings in which patients yeah. are experiencing this pandemic. Um, and the same is certainly true in the survivorship space, that those things have a real influence on, on a patient's outcome and in a patient's experience. 
So opportunities to make sure that we kind of use the lessons learned in COVID and use those to really um, continue to elevate those intersections between public health, clinical medicine, drug safety, and, and patient care and patient engagement, I think are going to be incredibly important. And I certainly see that in the, certainly the providers that I'm, I'm working with are definitely thinking about that, you know, and in, in, in terms of planning ahead um, and, and thinking, how do we, um, how do we limit and lessen some of these inequities? And I'm really grateful that you and your organization are out there looking at an even broader picture of how do we connect the the provider community with the, the payers and the regulatory and pharma and put that whole ecosystem together. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for sharing your insights with our audience today. I'm really grateful to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been a great fun to speak with you and thank you for the good work that you do as well. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Dr. Pettit's discussion, visit vocera.com podcast and click on her episode. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.